Hi everyone, I'm Shulpa and this is Chic Lotus Controversial Conversations, where we will hear from people of different backgrounds with different experiences and different perspectives on taboo topics, hoping to create a more accepting and less judgmental world. Let's get it started. For today's episode, I was inspired by Vanessa Guillen, a soldier at Fort Hood. She was killed on base by a soldier who was harassing her, and her remains were found in July. Vanessa's story had inspired many other female soldiers to share their stories of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Sadly, it's far too prevalent in our military and in other workplaces as well. So this week's question of the week, I asked how many men and women experience sexual harassment in the workplace? And if so, how many of you actually report it? And it just broke my heart to hear some of the messages and responses of women who did not feel that their voice mattered, that it would result in retaliation them losing their jobs, then not getting the promotion, not being accepted or liked by the rest of the group or the team. Too much, just too much paperwork. And I understand the fear, the embarrassment. I get it. I was there. I've, I've been in that situation. And I finally realized, especially after these interviews that I did for this week, that there is importance and value to my voice and to me speaking up and for me saying no. What if we believed that our voice did have power and that we could create change? What if we did see the importance of standing up and saying no, that this is not okay and reporting people who are abusing their power and taking advantage of a situation and other people. I want to have these conversations so we can see the value in our voice, that we can educate ourselves and others, that we can stand our ground, that we can protect our boundaries, protect ourselves, and hopefully create change in these work environments. Yeah, so this was the point of these interviews to to share the voices of women in the military and their experiences and to shed some light and education on how we can help prevent, how we can help educate, how we can have these conversations, normalize them, how we can help loved ones who have gone through sexual assaults and sexual harassment, how we can protect ourselves against it. So I have two guests on for today's podcast. And the first is actually um, a friend of Isaac's. And I'm so grateful that she came on. She is an officer in the Air Force. So she has a lot of information to share with us. And after that, we're going to be talking to Hannah, who was in the Navy and will be bravely sharing her story of assaults and her experience with the military investigation after that. Here's Anna. So we have Anna here, and you are a SARC officer in the Air Force. Can you um, kind of share with us what that actually means and tell us a little bit about yourself, your educational background? I'm a reservist, but I was placed on active duty orders and became SARC at Kunsan Air Base. 
I was victim advocate uh, at Dobbins, and I'm still a victim advocate for the SAPA program, which is the Sexual Assault Response Program. As a reservist, I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner. I work in the local hospital here at the uh, Atlanta area. Okay. So SARC stands for Sexual Assault Response Coordinator. Coordinator. Okay, got it. How long have you been doing this, and what made you go into it? I have been working in healthcare for 33 plus years. I've been in the military for nine years now. I came across working in mental health. So I've been in mental health for 10 years now. And it's the field that I really am able to listen to my patients, to my airmen, and be able to give that one-on-one support Mm -hmm. because that's very important in my field in psychiatry to listen and validate my patients what they're feeling. And it's very important work. It is, absolutely. Uh, what's, what's the process if someone comes to you? As a person, an airman will come to our office. I also have a victim advocate group that um, has helped volunteered and shaped that SAPR program in Korea, which was tremendous, tremendous, wonderful work of, the, of everybody in the, in the SAPR office. So shout out to those VAs uh, and Sergeant Kacha was one of them. Yes. <laughs> so it, it, it was a, a group of, of dedicated airmen working together because you're there for the victim of sexual assault, the, how they survive and how they can thrive through the process uh, of looking into that, that experience and learning from it and growing from it. That's mm. where we come. When someone experiences sexual assault, are you the first person that they would come to? Preferably the SAPR office, the SARC, or the victim advocate would be the person that you would need to speak with. And then there's a process. The victim will be given a chance to do the reporting. They want the restricted reporting. Command of the base will be notified, but their commanding officer is not. The commander of the perpetrator is not also told about the incident. If they choose to go to the restricted reporting option, they can be given the medical option to go to have the SANE exam, which is the sexual assault uh, nurse exam or safe exam. Some people call it the forensic exam and then be assisted that way because safety is very important for the victim. From there, what, what's your role after they do the exam and then they report it? So we, uh, the victim will be given a victim advocate Mm. Uh, which is like a liaison and be able to talk to someone if there's triggers going on. What is happening now? Where's the paperwork? If they need an expedited transfer for active duty folks, um, they can do that. That can be an option for them. Mm. Uh, They can be assisted to go to the medical treatment facility if they choose to, if they want to have the mental um, health aspect of it. So we, we go by what the victim wants. Okay. Is there a high rate of sexual assault in the military, the Air Force specifically, because that's where you, you're divided? Right. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of reporting, a lot of sexual assault that can happen. Now that uh, I think the military, especially the Air Force, I, can, I will speak to that. There are more people that are reporting because they're, we're more open to it. We're, there are more access. We're more educated. And the SAPR program is there to assist our airmen. One in three women are sexually assaulted. 
one in six males are sexually assaulted. But if you look at an iceberg, that's the tip that Mm. reports. Okay, so many men and women do not even talk about this out of shame, out of fear, out of reprisal. As you know, in the military, there's a chain of command, right? How do Mm. you even talk about that? Uh, Am I going to be promoted or not promoted because I spoke out, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A lot of the sexual assault that occurs can be because it's a lower ranking and the high ranking person is the one doing the the assault. It's It's very similar to to our civilian population. Somebody who's more powerful to less powerful. The age difference, we could see that as well. Because if I go, if I'm a younger airman going to another base and I don't know if anyone, right? Mm-hmm. These perpetrators, they groom the victim. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I come on, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of you. I'll look after you. And what happens? The assault happens because a lot of it can be involved with um, with uh, alcohol. Date, date rape drugs can be there as well. And the assault happens. Wow, that's really scary. So people take advantage. Same thing in the civilian. That's the same thing as well. I, I know when I'm, you're talking about uh, sexual abuse with children, that's the same mm. thing that the abuser will Mm-mm. do. Mm-hmm. Groom the children. That's- yep. Every nine minutes, a child is raped or sexually assaulted or molested. Every nine minutes. That's heartbreaking. Yes, yes. It's it's incredible. But these are the the people that we know that does the assault. Only five out of a thousand perpetrators go to trial or go to jail. Wow. Five Mm -hmm. out of a thousand. Out of a thousand will go to jail or to prison because what our system is not geared towards believing the victim. Absolutely. I, you know, I just did an interview um, with a woman who was in the Navy and she had, Mm. she had said the same thing. So she was sexually assaulted twice Mm. and um, she still has not received justice. And she was saying when she had reported it and had to deal with this whole process of, um, the investigation that people kept, even a female therapist was like, well, what did you do to put yourself in that situation? Mm -hmm. What did you, what were you wearing or what, what, you know, Mm. did you, did you not know better? And I'm just like, are we, we're still doing this Mm -hmm. till till today. Blaming the victim. Yes. Still blaming the victim. And, you know, she started questioning herself. Mm. Is it my fault? Did, did I have something to do with this? How can we change this, especially in, well, within the military, the Air Force? Do, we, do you think we need better training of the, of the people who do work with sexual assault victims? I think the more training we have, the, me- the better we understand what is going on, right? The, the trauma that occurs and why we either, you know, the, the three Fs of sexual assault, when it occurs, the, you fight, you flee, or you freeze. Mm. Most of the time we freeze because that is the way the brain functions. We are just so scared of what is happening that you just play dead. Just get it over with, be done with it. I, I don't want to fight anymore because I'm so fearful that I will, be, uh, will get killed. Mm. I will be hit. I will get hurt. 
So a lot of the times when investigation occurs, well, where, why didn't you fight back? Why didn't you scream? Where are the bruises? The, the people that are sexually assaulted are also feel dirty mm. because they've been touched. They've been penetrated. They've been, those are the things that I want to take a shower. I'm going to brush my teeth. But what do we know of the same exam, right? It has, we have to have the evidence. But because of that thinking that we have, we end up showering. We end up not, not thinking that, oh, I just want to be clean again. And that's what happens. So that's the reason why only five out of a thousand get to jail. And people in the, um, in the process are not trained fully or don't know the brain, the neurobiology of the trauma. Mm-hmm. And that people who've been traumatized will not have a linear uh, thinking of what has happened. At six o'clock, I went to the, to the uh, apartment. At 6.30, my friend came in. Uh, at 6.45, I was given this drink. At seven o'clock, I was sexually assaulted. It doesn't happen that way. Because out of fear, you don't remember those specific times. We can remember the smell. Victims remember how many grids on the ceiling or I remember the curtain because victims who are being sexually assaulted will, will detach themselves from what is happening and will, will just remove my, my, myself from that trauma. And you will remember the pattern of the, the curtain or the music. And I will just zone myself out and, and focus on that because I don't want to focus because I'm so fearful right now. That's how uh, uh, an investigator or a SARC or a victim advocate or, a me- uh, or even a medical doctor, nurse, EMT has to investigate or to ask, what did you feel? How, how fearful were you? What do you remember of it? Don't ask, what time was it? What were you wearing? What did you take? You know, that kind of thing. Those are not important when you are feeling the trauma or experiencing the trauma. So those are the things that we have to think of. With Hannah was her name is who I interviewed. Mm. Um, So she said after her assault, you know, she had reported it. They did the the SANE exam and then, Mm -hmm. but he, you know, her assaulter was still out there and still Mm -hmm. working and is still working. He still Mm -hmm. has, she hasn't received justice for what has happened Mm -hmm. to her. Yeah. So how... How does that happen? Even when someone is being reported, why are people not taking it seriously? I don't know about the Navy. I can speak to the Air Force. The Air Force does take it seriously. We have an office, uh, the special investigator that handles the uh, unrestricted reporting. And we have a bigger program where we have a database where we put information. Of course, no, no names and anything like that. There's a number. We ha- the Air Force now has a catch program. If things in the base are happening, hmm, same things are happening around this area. The victims are saying that this is oh, this person is giving me drinks every time and is grooming me. So the catch program tries to see if, if it's the same person over and over again. So that's that's, that's where important. the Air Force is now. Yes, very important. And in the Air Force, the retaliation 
we cannot have that. So if I'm an airman who's been victimized and sexually assaulted, I tell my commander there cannot be any retaliation. So that's very important. That's a change now. I don't know about the other branches. I'm pretty sure they probably have something similar. I don't know what they call it, but... So if you have been victimized, that nothing can come back on you? Is that what you mm-hmm. mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That, that's what we're hoping that will happen, right? Um, that nothing can happen to the victim. But again, five out of a thousand, that's crazy, right? In the Air Force, we have a special victim council, which is a legal council for those who've been sexually assaulted. So that is um, the legal office helping the victim. Okay, this is the process now. We're doing this. What are the legalities? What, What will happen now? So those are things that we are putting in place to help the victim. Um, the victim can go to mental health. So th- we have things in place. Key is, will the victim speak out? Uh, 93% of victims of sexual assault, we know the person who did this. This is a coworker. This is a family friend. This is a neighbor. This is a relative who did the sexual assault, molestation, the rape, sodomy. So we know them. We trust them. We've been groomed. And then this is what happened. So there's embarrassment, there's guilt, there's fear, right? What if that's your commanding officer? What Mm -hmm. if it's your supervisor? What if it's a relative, a neighbor, a police officer, a cousin? So it's even harder for males as well. Yeah, I would imagine so because that's... Mm -hmm. Even more, more of a stigma. Yeah, yes. more of a stigma. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Because of the um, unintended circumstances, right? Mm-hmm. Males can have an erection, mm-hmm. right? Males can ejaculate. Those are the medical terms that we use in in my field. But that doesn't mean that I am gay. Am I gay? Men do think of those things. What just happened to me? I had an airman who said, no, that cannot happen to males. I'm big. I'm buffed. I can fight back. Again, the fear, you freeze no matter how big you are, no matter how uh, strong we are. And sometimes we have that notion that if we take Krav Maga or karate classes or Aikido, that I can defend myself. Sometimes, yes, but most of the time we know these people and we are caught unaware, we're incapacitated, we've been given alcohol, we've been given this drug, and now this is what's happening. It's sad. The more we speak out, the more we learn, the more we are able to tell our commanders what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. If we don't have that conversation, if we don't use mental health because there's stigma that I cannot talk to anyone, Mm -hmm. right? If we normalize that we can talk about these things, then it it will make it better. But change is slow. How do we get ahead of sexual assaults? What do you think we can be doing better? Uh, We have to look at being together, being as a group, going out, watching out for each other. Do not leave your airmen behind, male or female, right? These perpetrators have done it many times. They know how to incapacitate a male or a female. They know what works and what doesn't work. That's mm-hmm. why they keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And getting away with it. Yeah. Getting away with it. Yeah. yeah. That, that is very true. That is very true. So as airmen, as family members, ask. 
what is making you feel uncomfortable because these perpetrators they they groom you they talk to you they they want to see what your weaknesses are so that's where they come from and then do the assault so as a group we have to be aware of these things that are happening mm-hmm. um are, is that person more uncomfortable so there's a, a, a range that you can look at in the uh, workspace is there somebody talking about jokes sexual jokes right the continuum of harm is what i call it and if people are laughing about the sexual jokes hmm maybe i can move on to the next part maybe i can bring a nude picture of a male or a female and if is that acceptable within the workplace okay i can move a little bit more let's go out and let's see who is open to be drinking and let's see who's vulnerable a lot of these perpetrators oh let me take care of you come on let's i'll help you go back to the dorms go back to the uh, the hotel where you are and the assault happens because they've groomed themselves they knew so if you put it a stop where it first occurs like mm-hmm. the the jokes those comments then that's say uh uh no this this environment is not for you right be that bystander and say nope we don't approve of that so we put a stop right there so that that assault won't happen on the other end so yeah. continuum of harm is very important to know and realize that we we always have to be in the green we cannot go to yellow we cannot go to the red we put a stop where the green is and that is so i'm so happy that you teach that that's so important i'm thinking about you know i i work in the healthcare field too i'm an occupational oh, therapist yeah really? so at one of the buildings i was working at the administrator was like hitting on me or making sexual jokes or whatever and i would laugh it off even though i was really uncomfortable but i never reported him for that same re- i was just like oh i don't want to i don't want him to lose his job i don't want him to get in trouble i'm i'm too concerned about him mm-hmm. rather than my own uncomfort in this whole situation i was never taught to say, like for you to even say that to me what you just said always keep it in the green you know you you think it's sim- like a simple idea that you should just automatically kind of know but maybe even hearing it just he- hearing you say it makes it like yeah you're right i i don't need to go into the yellow i don't need to go because that leads to other situations right. it just keeps getting worse the, if you yes. there they're okay with this one comment if you're okay with this one comment i'm going to keep mm-hmm. pushing to see what else i can get away with you're so right and what happens in that work environment right it degrades the trust yes it degrades the system and then we don't know how many in that office have been sexually assaulted or mm-hmm. been molested as a child mm-hmm. right we got to look at the cultural aspects also of how women are viewed how men are viewed if you look at magazine ads or photos how do we view women if you google it you will be amazed by how women are viewed differently in different cultures and in in different arenas even in the united states the south the in new york in california Absolutely. in the pacific northwest and even in the military mm-hmm. even in our branches of the military it's very different so how do we view ourselves um how when i talk to my airmen or my patients i look at where they coming from because it could be that in their in their culture they're you don't talk you just be seen or you be nice 
Yes. You don't be nice, become yeah. aggressive, right? You cannot be, you'll be termed as a bad girl because mm-hmm. you're being aggressive. Mm-hmm. You're too much. It's like, what, what, what do you mean I'm too much? If you're too outspoken. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So we have to have those boundaries. Those boundaries are very important, even as a child. Yes. As, as we, we have kids or nieces and nephews and even our airmen who are 18, 19 years old going to another country without anybody, no family now. Yeah. And you're thrown into this situation, not knowing what your boundaries are. It's okay to say no. No is no. A victim who's incapacitated, that is not consent. Somebody who's not talking because that person is being so so fearful that I might get killed. I'm not going to speak out. I'm, I'm just going to cry. I'm going to zone myself out. I'm detached. That's not consent, right? Somebody who has been drinking, that's not consent. So what is consent? You got to know. Those are the conversations that we have to have every time. And and that's the thing. It it is about the conversations. It is about, Mm -hmm. and that's the key. That's the most important part of all of this is how can we have these conversations and educate each other and like just this even simple fact you know, mm-hmm. of being in the green, protecting your boundaries or asking that question, what are your boundaries? Like you said, most of us don't even know because we were taught to have them in the first place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot of the times the, the sexual assault do occur with women, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not minimizing the sexual assault in men, but because in our culture, women are looked at differently women can be objectified, mm-hmm. right? If you look Absolutely. at our, our history, rule of thumb, what is the rule of thumb? It's using a stick, an inch to beat women. It's only recent that we can go vote. It's only recent that we are not looked at as object, that we're not objects of the, the husband. So there's a lot of history into it. So we've got to educate ourselves. We've got to teach and, and be together because yeah. you have to know your part, do your part. So I wanted to also talk about Vanessa Guillen. You know, she was talking about how this guy was harassing her for a while. And even Hannah, who I'd spoken to, she was also saying how this guy was harassing her for a while before anything was, you know, mm-hmm. before he attacked her. Are you able to report that? And what happens once you do report it? Because because they're not technically doing anything uh, physically, you know, to, to harm you, but they are, they are harassing you, text messages, showing yeah. up at work or whatever it is. Harassment has to be reported to the Equal Opportunity Office. That's a different office from our office. Again, there's a gray area of mm-hmm. what occurs. But yes, you have to report. You have to tell someone that I'm feeling uncomfortable right now. Report it. Put a stop to it right away. Again, there's a gray area. Uh, well, this is only a text, but what is a bad text and then not so good text or a good text, right? Mm-hmm. Again, those boundaries. It's very unfortunate for what had happened to Vanessa. But how many Vanessas are there in the military? How many? And how many more Vanessas are will there? be there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, it was so sad because of what has happened. And I don't know what's going on in Fort Hood. I'm not there. Any person who's been sexually assaulted, murdered, that's one too many. Yeah. 
So yeah, it does start with the harassment because they want to know where they can go forward, that continuum of harm. So once investigation is going on, how do you ensure the safety of, uh, you know, the, the one who has experienced the sexual assault? And how do you keep the assaulter away? Or how do you, how does, how do you feel, how do you allow her to feel protected or him or her to feel protected? Yeah. There's a military protective order that can be done. There's the expedited transfer that the uh, victim can ask the commander and say, I don't feel safe because this uh, perpetrator is in the same shop as I am or unit. I want to be transferred. And a lot of the times that expedited transfer is being given for the safety of the victim. Have you had people who come to you who have been victimized more than once and mm-hmm. by multiple people? Yes. Why do you we call it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Sorry. Why do we, why does that happen? Yeah. Why do you think that happened? Sometimes we don't see the red flags. This person has been victimized as a child. And in that environment, that is probably the norm that that person has learned. And it's like, don't talk about it. Don't, don't even say because that's shameful for the family, shameful for you. Now there's guilt, right? And then you move to another spot. For some reason, the victim is unable to, to say, oops, that's a red flag. That person is harassing me right now is going into the yellow zone and going to the red zone. We don't see those flags. For some reason, the brain turns that off. But because we have to relearn things, relearn in the the part in the brain, and then we let our guards down because we want to be loved, we want to be accepted. Okay, I'll do the drink. Sexual assault happens again. And then we move on. Something happens. We let our guards down again. We try to trust. Most most of the time that can occur, but there are times too that we can say, okay, no more of that. But because I was able to process all the trauma that has happened. What did you say the term was called again? Well, I cut you off. (laughs) Polytrauma. Polytrauma. multiple layers of trauma. So if you look at a flower, sometimes it's hard to give that uh, analogy for males. Sometimes they don't like the flower because it's more feminine. So I would say, how about an onion (laughs) or a car part that you have to dismantle one at a time, one petal at a time, one engine or one door of a car at a time before you look at the heart of that person. And that's where the healing comes. But all those layers of trauma has to be processed. It cannot just be sexual assault. It can be poverty. It can be not living in a good neighborhood uh, so that we don't have that safety net now, right? Mm -hmm. So trauma can be very different. How about PTSD when you're in combat area and you try to forget. So what happens? We try to forget, we drink, we do drugs, we self-medicate so that we feel better. But it's a tiny, tiny amount of feeling okay. And then it gets worse. Because it it just doesn't go away if you don't Mm -hmm. work on the healing. It's Mm -hmm. there and it's going to come out in some way. Yes, yes. I've had uh, patients, airmen, military service members that have had the trauma a long time and they never process it. And here they are, 60, 70 years old, and they start crying. I was like, oh, I never knew. Because it's never been asked. It's never been talked about because of the stigma of mental health. The barriers were there. I'm a military service member. I cannot be perceived as weak. I'm a strong person. 
I can fight back. A lot of processing. And we have to believe the victim. We have to believe the person saying, I think I've been sexually assaulted. I think this is what happened. Believe the victim. Believe that person. And sometimes they might not be able to tell you that something has happened because they want to forget and they put it in the back of their mind. I I don't want to deal with it. But has there a change in behavior? Has there a change in the sleep pattern? Am I locking the door more often? Am I I don't feel safe now? I'm more anxious. Uh, I cannot eat. I I get startled easily. That hypervigilance, right? Hyper alert stage. My anxiety is up to here. I'm now depressed. I don't want to go out. I'm going to isolate. I don't take care of myself. I forget things. I cannot concentrate. So those are the symptoms that we as military family have to look at. Are they drinking more? Are they started doing things that are hurtful? Are they doing self-injurious behavior? Are they being reckless with their driving or are they having multiple partners now because well i've been objectified now i'm gonna control myself who i want to be with and i'm gonna be everyone i'll be with everyone because i can control that that's reckless behavior because the the trauma was not processed. So be, be aware of those things. As loved ones or as friends, you know, how do we support people who have been vict- victimized? We believe the victim, as I said, believe them, be open, validate, validate the anger, validate the tearfulness, validate the anxiety. Say, um, I, I see that you are going through this. Let them lead. What, what can I do for you? What are you feeling right now? Don't say, well, you did this because you wore that skimpy skirt or that you had pants that were a little bit too tight and you were showing off. You deserve it. That's not the way to do it. You empathize. Very different from sympathize and empathize. You put yourself in that situation and, and say, well, I see that you, you've been hurting. I see that you are feeling tearful right now. I see the sadness, right? You validate. That's what we need to be in as a family member, as a friend, as an airman military family. Do you have a last message yeah, for everyone to hear or for hopes for how things can get better with sexual assault in the military or just anywhere, everywhere outside the military as well, because it's happening everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just a last message that you'd like to leave us with. I think be vigilant of what's going on. If you are in the military, be that airman that be that uh, wingman and be with that person. If you see, if you you know, know your gut feeling, if you don't feel comfortable, speak out. Know your part, do your part. Say something, be that bystander and, and don't agree, okay? Always stay in the green. We teach our children about boundaries. What is yes. a touch for you? You tell me yes. what are you comfortable with. These are things I never, no one asked me these questions. And knowing about the green, staying in the green, listening to if something makes you feel uncomfortable, you have the power to say no and you are allowed mm-hmm. to do it. So mm-hmm. this is why these conversations are so important. And I'm, yes. I'm yes. So, so grateful to you because being able to put this inform- information out there will help so many people, not just people in the military. This is going to help people just like me who took something out of mm-hmm. I Now I can teach to my children 
about the green, staying in the green. Yeah, I'm just so grateful to you. Thank you so much, Anna. Now that you've heard Anna, the SARC officer speak, here is Hannah's story. So we have Hannah here. First of all, you're so brave because this is not easy to share. And I saw your post on Instagram about your experience. And I was like, man, I have to reach out to her. We have to talk about this. My husband's also in the military. So he's told me some stories, but let's start off kind of getting to know you. What made you join the military? I was about 20 when I joined and I was mostly just looking for a sense of direction because I had tried the college experience and had no idea what I wanted to do. It definitely helped shape my future, which it's kind of weird with current climate because I feel like I'm 50-50 with really enjoying my experience. Like there was good guys that I met. They're pretty much brothers to me, but I definitely tried not to get jaded at the military as a whole when everything happened. I joined after college and it was just kind of being lost in translation, trying to figure out what I want to do. And both my parents were army veterans too. So it was also need to feel the serve the country. Yeah. But yeah, I actually joined the Navy because my parents wouldn't let me join the army, but oh no way. Why wouldn't they let you join the army? <laughs> uh they they just saw the benefit to outcome ratio and it they were like the Navy seems to have something along the lines that you wanted to do. But when you joined the Navy, what was it like? Were there a lot of women? There were still women in, but there wasn't as much. I was an airplane mechanic for my time, so I didn't really go into a female dominated profession, which I was okay with because I grew up with foster brothers. I was like, oh, I'm one of the boys. It's okay. It's still conflicting almost just because I have a love for the military, but also with everything that's happening, it's just kind of infuriating. It's one of those, I don't know if the Vanessa Guillen case itself was pretty triggering. At least most other survivors that I've talked to have been like, it's a really triggering experience just to see how it's like the military kind of let us down again. I think it's just the triggering part was listening to different people that interacted with the army investigators who were pretty much blase about it. And I experienced a lot of similarities during my investigation because it was a re-traumatizing situation all over again just because my first assault they were suspected that he used devil's breath which is a more common drug down south it's like getting roofied but like a herbal version of it which oh wow a really interesting drug to like see how it interacts with the human body mine was put in my beer and i didn't even really taste it i don't know if that was just like my hipster beer choices or not for me at least it wasn't a normal just a night of drinking a beer out in a smoke pit only having one beer when you drank that beer you didn't feel or taste anything i didn't remember a lot so I was honestly kind of gaslighting myself. Did this actually happen or am I just being crazy? Did you wake up the next morning in someone's bed? How, how did it all kind of go down and how did you know something happened? I woke up in my own barracks room bed, which for those who have never been in a barracks room, it's kind of like a college dorm, but just shittier in <laughs> most aspects. It was like I woke up and I felt like I had gotten hit with a bus almost just like hangover wise and it was mostly like really cloudy and it felt like I had had sex and I at first honestly I didn't tell anyone about it because I was trying to process I guess what happened the way my case came out was mostly I had asked a friend who was close to me at the time 
what would you do if this happened to your girlfriend? Because I was dating someone at the time and he kind of put it together. And I had a call from the SARC, which is like the military sexual assault coordinator. Once the SARC called me, I broke down and started crying because it had been like a week after. And I still beat myself up a little, honestly, that I didn't go get safe kit right after, which that's probably where I dropped the ball in the essence. But I also know that if the military were better screening their enlistees, at least in my eyes, better screening and like maybe just changing the culture more or less with the Me Too culture in general. So can you explain what the safe kit is just for anyone who doesn't know what it is? Yeah, um, so the safe kit, it's a really thorough process. It's nurses and doctors that do it, but for me it was still triggering because it was going through another stranger touching different parts. They're taking pictures and I know what they're doing. It was just trying to get over the mental barrier, I guess. This isn't happening all over again, which I don't know if that's a process to look at to be changed. I also know they need their evidence, so it's kind of or less. Yeah. So after all of this, what, a week later, did the investigation start? And how did that go about? It started a week after it happened, but I had, I would say impeccable timing at the time because I was going away on a detachment by myself from the command to Japan for nine months. And for me, I begged and pleaded with the SARC in my commands. If I go on deployment, everyone's going to forget I exist. I can go enjoy culture somewhere else. Honestly, just try and distance myself from it. I ended up going on deployment. There was an NCIS in Misawa that had talked to the ones to the ones that I was stationed at in Washington. And it was it was really back and forth. They were like, okay, let's see if you can pick them out of a virtual lineup. And for me, I was like, I remember the outline of his face because I was like drugged. So it was it was really difficult to say the least. It was more or less that, and I was getting pulled out of my daily duties, like at the command, getting pulled away from that to go talk to them. Everyone I was deployed with kind of knew what was going on, just because the thing with the Vanessa Guillen case and accountability for me is something that really upsets me, just because I've worked on a flight line before, and there's been tools that have gone missing, and the entire base shuts down, so how do you lose a whole person for that amount of time and just not, not like- shut down. Yeah. yeah, not shut down. That's the most infuriating thing for me right now with yeah. that whole situation. Were people treating you differently uh, with them knowing what was happening with the investigation? It was, I had a few people that were treating me differently in the aspects of, I think they were, they were trying to show compassion. But for me at the time, the whole investigative process felt like such an invasion of privacy that having other people in the command that Like, they were trying to be compassionate and make sure I'm okay. I just want to not talk about this and be left alone for a minute. And I don't think I was getting that chance, really. Which, it it was definitely an eye-opener for the humanity that I had lost a little bit in the military. Yeah. Yeah. Was your perpetrator someone you knew? Did you end up finding out? He actually lived on the floor above me. And I vaguely remember conversations with him. He had seen me before, which I, for me at least, I was like, I don't know how you've seen me before. Yeah, he wasn't someone I knew. The second person that uh, assaulted me, I worked in the same command with him. I had a friend that gave my perpetrator my number because she thought we were friends and she didn't know. And I 
was kind of one of those people at the command that tried to welcome in younger sailors. I kind of put it into perspective that um, they were away from home for the first yeah, time. Hard. They didn't have their parents. It was at least for the second one, I kind of regretted doing that, but I guess it was just still kind of have the internal conflicts of being overly nice. A lot of people had said I was like a mother hen-esque thing where I would make sure everyone was okay before myself. How far apart was the second occurrence and how did that happen? Both assaults happened in the month of August. They were just a year apart. So I kind of have a real hatred for the month of August. My second perpetrator was starting to like harass me at the time, incessantly text me and ask like where I am. And it just got to a point where for me, I thought I had made a clear line of, I'm just trying to be your friend and make sure that you adjust to a new command okay. Like it wasn't, I wasn't trying to be sexual. Like it was very one of those, I don't know. It's just like when a guy doesn't get the hint. It's, yeah. Oh, I've definitely experienced that too. I know what you mean. It's really hard with the Vanessa Guillen case going on that people are like, women shouldn't enlist anymore because I feel like there's plenty of women out there like myself who are have the need at least try and better themselves and serve the country. But when they get met with this, misogynistic is a word yeah. I like rarely yeah. like to use, but it was definitely how many, I couldn't count how many times I got mansplained about my job. Did it help when I was trying to still get help on base, the mental health facilities? My therapist would allude to things like, why were you doing this? And like, you could have prevented yourself from doing that. And oh my God, this yeah, so that was <gasps> It was, yeah. for me, I, it was really hard to keep my composure just because it's a she was a lieutenant commander and I'm just an E3 and for me I was like how is another woman telling another woman this and it it was really kind of a mind fuck like I mean re-victimizing a victim exactly with my second investigation I had just lost all hope with the military in general because I had gotten uh, examined out at a civilian hospital and NCIS being a separate entity from the civilian world, I had to get a few different copies of the same letter saying like, I released my information to NCIS, but I filled out multiple versions of that paper and I think it took them a year to get my safe kit back. And that's when I was just like, you guys had your chance. I was trying to be cooperative the whole time, but hearing the NCIS investigators that would talk to my friends about my social life and things of that nature, they had insinuated with the second perpetrator that it's just a high school crush on a ride type thing. And for me, I was just like, holy shit, somebody's telling my friends this and I'm 22 years old. Some people join straight out of high school, but I'm like, fuck you, this is the real world. You're not with mom and dad anymore. There's people that definitely, it's almost like the higher ranking sometimes kind of look at it as like a glorified babysitter's club mm-hmm. when it comes to like the little 18 year olds that are fresh out, which oh. I don't know if I've just been more mature in my life just because I grew up an only child and then accumulated foster brothers for a while until I got out, which wasn't until about a year and a half after my assault. But the real kicker for Both my assaults is after the second one, I was granted an expedited transfer, which is essentially you can tell your command like this happened and you don't feel safe anymore. And then they'll move you somewhere that's not the same base, but they kept me in the same state. And for me, it was like a two hour drive south from the where 
my assaulter was living in the barracks at. And after about two months, I he started following me again. And it was one oh of those. Oh, my God. I'm like, leave me alone. I've done everything possible to say no. For me, it was just infuriating because I'm like, I'm not that cool. Leave me alone. With the second assault, how did, I know he was texting you and he wouldn't back off. So what actually happened? It started about a week after my Article 15 hearing where he would incessantly texting and my barracks room was on the first floor. So like you could hear people walking around outside and I started to get tapping on my window in the middle of the night and it was just terrifying because I'm like, who knows where my window is? Like what the fuck? And it had it kept continuously kept going and I had told the base police, hey, this guy's tapping on my window in the middle of the night. What do I do? Obviously it was triggering and sent me back to the first it had escalated and I think I it was about a month of him tapping on my windows. He stood at my window and I left the window like a little bit ajar because it was summertime and I had just gotten out of the shower and the room gets really steamy. So I opened it up a little bit, but I had got sent pictures of myself changing to my number and it was one of those for me a terrifying thing and I was trying to like uh for anybody that's insane yeah it was one of those I still to this day I think that's the reason I'm so jumpy is just because I'm like who's watching me and where are they yeah it had escalated to the pictures and then my mom got it for me actually but it was a vibration alarm thing to put on the window where if the alarm goes off, it's because someone's tapping on the window, essentially. Uh, okay. My mom and I both thought it would kind of scare him off because it's a really loud, chirpy alarm type thing. And it did at first, but then it started going off at like two or three o'clock in the morning and it would wake up other people. And I was, I'm just trying to sleep and live my life. Leave me alone. And I finally got fed up with it and stuck my head out the window. Just what's your problem? And I guess that reflecting back on it, sticking my head out a window instead of just going outside to confront them was probably somewhere where I kind of beat myself up on. I stuck my head out the window and I just remember something like coming, swinging at my face. The nurse said that it looks like it was like a bat or something that hit me in the face, but I, I, I was unconscious for about 12 hours and woke up the next morning to the barracks petty officer which is like the person that runs the barracks essentially and my leading petty officer who they came into my room and thought I was dead because there was blood and scratches everywhere and I woke up in like sheer panic almost just because I thought it was still happening I guess it was one of those I just kind of shut down all over again because I was like how does this happen twice within a year on the same base who's not doing their job here? I, I guess for me in my brain, I feel like I'm like really analytical and try and listen to all the things that they teach you in boot camp of females travel in pairs and have a battle buddy in certain situations. And it's just annoying because I hear my male counterparts in the military, they don't get the same talk. It's kind of like, a, oh, we're at another sexual assault training because they would do train they would do trainings, but it would be slideshows on upon slideshows upon slideshows. Like who's listening to that? Yeah, I would get so bored just even like teaching them because I taught them at my command when I was an advocate, but it was just, it's just disheartening because I just, it's one of those, I thought people higher ranking than me would have my back because like that's pretty much, that's what they teach you in boot camp. It was like I had few and far between leaders that would definitely show their compassion. 
I had a senior chief tell me that the entire division knew, which, well, they're not supposed to. Why are all these people getting into my business, essentially? What happened to your second assaulter, especially because you were getting texts, you knew who it was? For my second assaulter, uh, nothing ended up happening to him because they said that they didn't have... That's, are you kidding that's me? What, yeah, it was... I think that's why the Vanessa Gann thing was like triggering to me at least because nothing happened to my perpetrator. And if I let things escalate, they pro- I probably would have left that base in a body bag. It's, I don't want to think about it, but it's also one of those realities that I've definitely thought about. Why didn't anything happen? The investigators told me that it was essentially a bunch of he said, she said until they got my safe kit. And Oh my God, are you freaking kidding me right now? I, I'm so angry. No, it's- Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, it was oh my I was god. like, thankfully this happened like three years ago now for me, so I can kind of deal with the realities, but it definitely at the time I was just I was just this big ball of anger and I joined the military about as hippie as it gets coming from Colorado, honestly. Like yeah. felt like I still kind of put a lot of self-blame on myself and I try not to. I don't do it as much, I guess. I got angry when Vanessa Gaines showed up dead. 70 days later just because it shouldn't have I beat myself all the time beat myself up all the time because I think it shouldn't have happened to me let alone all these other women it it's an incredible amount of women who came forward about it which yes it's a really uncomfortable thing to talk about but if it doesn't get talked about there's not going to be a change towards a better yeah. After I shared my story, I even had a girl reach out who was still in high school that was asking about, should I enlist? Yes or no. And I kind of told her, you should enlist if you want to, but like, don't, for me at least, I was, don't go into it thinking that it's all kittens and rainbows. As women have been fearful of walking home by themselves. Definitely. It took you a year and a half to get out after your second assault. No, I got out medically just because my doctor told me that uh, my second assault since it was like really violent and had a lot of blows to the head I had scrapes up and down everywhere it set on fibromyalgia which is a weird disease in and of itself it's definitely been like a an ego trip because before I got assaulted I would do stuff like run marathons and go rock climbing but now I have all these shitty nerves that kind of inhibit it almost and it's it's really hard not to blame my assaulter for mm-hmm. pretty much giving me this like shit disease but I'm definitely managing it better now that I'm out of the military. What is helping you heal? You you're so strong by the way. I was like tearing up when you were telling me your story and really I'm a medical marijuana patient so that has helped with the anxiety of feeling on edge all the time just because Honestly, that's a job in and of itself, it feels like. But I definitely know talking about it to other survivors has seemed to help just because in like a weird way, at least for me, finding someone that has been through similar experiences, you know that they kind of get it. Yeah, and you're not alone in your pain and experience. Yeah. Yeah, and I... I definitely think that if I didn't have my family and the support system that I have now that it would definitely be a different mind space for me because for the first year after everything happened, I was trying to avoid it and suppress it and shove it way deep down there, just never to be talked about again. But after getting diagnosed with PTSD from it, it was definitely one of those, I had seen all these like 
signs that I had PTSD. And for me, it was, I don't want to be the normal military vet getting out with PTSD just because I feel like there's almost like a civilian stereotype on it. It was one of those, I didn't want to explain why I was, why I had PTSD either, because I have a service dog that if I didn't get my service dog Cooper, I don't think I would be here just because it's like that support system in and of itself of having something else rely on you, not make you feel as crazy when you talk to her. Yeah. A huge difference. As a survivor, how would you have wanted people to respond to you, whether it's, you know, medical staff or your coworkers? Or- the protocols they have in place are okay. It's just that they don't necessarily get upholded and I just wish that not everyone knew my damn business. It was feeling like a weird fucked up version of high school all over again. And I felt like I kept getting re-victimized by people in my chain of command and the medical staff, which I don't know if that was their intention, but that's, I don't know if they had the most open mind during someone telling them like, hey, this really traumatic thing just happened to me. But I honestly got to a low point for getting out of the military that it was taking so long that I was just, I could smoke weed and get out so much faster. But then all this time I just dedicated, would just go out the door and I didn't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That was a smart move because you deserve it. Yeah. I definitely contemplated. Not going to lie. Yeah. I mean, being out now, it definitely helps. I actually got a text message from my second assaulter after releasing my story and I put it on my Instagram too just because yeah that's where I saw it Mm -hmm. I feel like if I can't feel safe in my own neighborhood being out of the military that where can I really feel safe at what did he say he said things of essentially that he was angry with me telling my story and that his threat was that I should have left the base in a body bag which it was one of those super triggering because it was almost the same day it was within a week of Vanessa being found. And I was like, I really could have left that base in a body bag. I don't want to like gaslight him or ruin his life, but also- Girl, he fucking hurt, yeah. hurt you. He uh, yeah, it, he caused a lot of damage. It's, and, and it's definitely for me, one of those internal conflicts, at least just because I feel like that's my personality. But I definitely, at this point, I'm just like, leave me alone, man. I've given every, every excuse in the book and every, felt like I did everything possible to get this guy away from me. Cause even when I was in the military, I tried to do pretty much a military version of a restraining order and the command kind of threw it back in my face. He's a good sailor. And that was the, that was the part I was like, either I'm going to die or I'm not. So I guess I should just try and get out and set myself up for civilian world, I guess. I think I was more fearful than anything of not telling people what happened and then something happening to me because I just, I just don't want this asshole to have more control over me than he seems like he does already. But I, yeah, I don't know if it just infuriated him that I told the story, even though I didn't mention names or where I was stationed because I thought I was being safe by doing that. But I guess I didn't realize the power of social media and how things get quickly shared across at least for me, I think I had about 80,000 people reach out within the first day or two. And that wow. was, for me, incredible. I don't even, like, know how to do social media that well. Yeah. What do you mean these all these people have read my story? But I got so much support back from people, which it honestly empowered me just because I felt like by doing the social media posts that I was writing my own narrative, which yes. I didn't feel like I could during 
all the root of things going down. What do you feel like the military needs to change? What could they put into place? I think the culture, just because when I was going through basic training, it was, um, they were trying to get rid of the whole constructs of you can't swear like a sailor or drink like a sailor, which makes sense because I feel like they were trying to change the culture in some way, shape or form. But I just don't know if they did it enough to where there was enough compassionate people in charge. In my opinion, just doing the research on the different, like the processes of everything. I think they're definitely trying to better their system, but the culture could change where it wouldn't have to be such a culture of boys will be boys. And it would be more of a, this is someone that's the same rank as me, or they're a person too. They don't matter any less. And I think that's something that kind of gets lost in senior leadership almost just with the different the upper ranking I don't feel like people should have the I'm better than you mindset but I feel like it definitely runs vapid in the military and it's definitely one of those at least when my parents joined the navy it seems like not the navy the army sorry when they joined it was you had to trust everyone on your team because they were going out in the field with you and you were living with them for six months but I think with like modern technology and things of that nature that it seems like service members are more self-involved about their own career and their own everything going on but respecting people as humans in general there was more compassion and i know that's like a weird thing to say when it comes to like the military you could go to the sandbox and shoot guys for six months that definitely fucks with your head but i think it's just a matter of being a better person in general for most service members There's a lot that are trying to be good people and help their younger sailors, but there's a fair amount that just don't really give a shit. I'm also thinking, you know, the idea of making mental health a priority for everyone in the military. Yeah. That maybe that. Yeah, no, I agree. Even during this COVID time, I feel like I've lost way too many friends to suicide. A lot of service members beat themselves up when they hear about things like that that happen, like even veterans. Service members are like, why didn't I reach out more when the military kind of backed up the whole, like, don't show emotion because it's a sign of weakness, which was a really big overcoming for me, at least. And it definitely, I still struggle with it. How do you feel you've changed after both your assaults and experience with the military? I feel like I've changed in a multitude of ways because I, like, my mother has said after getting assaulted that she wants her happy-go-lucky Hannah back, which struggle with internally because I still have these nightmares and I still have what feels like a plethora of problems mentally going in, but I'm supposed to put on this personality for everyone else. You know, you sharing your story is going to help and affect other people. These experiences, has it affected your sex life or your dating life? I am actually engaged now. Um, Congratulations. Uh, thank you. After both assaults and the, my experience with the military, I, def- I lost a lot of faith in men as a whole. But no, my wife, she's a civilian. She's really great. She is like a weird security blanket now just because I shared with her what happened and she didn't have any judgment towards it all. I would say definitely the one thing that I still kind of struggle with is sex a little bit, but she's really understanding about it, which definitely helps our relationship to say the least. It's definitely great now, but when I first got out, it was kind of a kind of a roller coaster of like, I didn't know what I wanted. I kind of had a weird promiscuity phase because I just had all these men pretty much tell me that I'm just a body to them. And Mm -hmm. for me mentally, I was just like, am I just a body? I don't fucking know anymore. 
but really she grounded me, which is a really amazing feeling just because I didn't feel like I had that for a while. And she helped you see your worth again. She helped me get a voice that I thought I kind of lost. Yeah. She was just as infuriated about everything that happened to me and what all the guys in the military did of what were you wearing? How did you put yourself in this situation? She did the complete opposite, which probably one of the reasons I fell in love with her. That's amazing. I'm so glad you found someone like her to support you through all of this. What would you say are things to never say to a victim who is sharing their story with you? I think for other people telling their story, I think the biggest thing that people are nervous about is them getting judged about what kind of situation they put themselves in. And honestly, if people just knock that off, it would be a much smoother process. People would, I feel like after getting assaulted, might have a little bit more faith in humanity because even the victim advocates in the military, they can't, they can be there for you physically, but like they can't tell you what to do or like you can't give your opinion about the situation that happened. So pretty much do not ask what you're wearing, what you're doing, why you were there in the first place. Because then, yeah, you're you're essentially blaming the victim for what happened. There's been plenty of people that have shared their experiences with me that they weren't shown any empathy either. And a conflicting thing with humanity, I guess. And then like you start to question yourself when you're not getting it from people around you. You're like, oh, am I the one to blame if everyone else is Yeah, and telling my story has been more empowering, I think, than any therapy that I've done so far. So it's definitely, I I definitely encourage other people to speak out, but I also know if you're not ready, you're not ready. Thank you so much, Until next time, this is Shilpa on Chic Lotus Controversial Conversations.